This morning, I want to talk to you about how life under the new covenant of grace brings us into both the kingdom of God and a completely different set of laws. So many believers are struggling in their Christian walk because they have been misled into believing that there is very little difference between the new covenant and the old. For many years, I myself struggled under the misconceptions that the old covenant laws applied to me. (laughs) Just not the sacrifices, everything else I was accountable for. I was taught that I was given the Holy Spirit for the express purpose of fulfilling the law, of being able to do the, the law of Moses and thereby be found righteous in the sight of God. And many still are taught this concept as being the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Many are incorrectly still teaching this. Jesus plus law-keeping equals right-standing with God. And Jesus plus law-breaking equals wrong-standing with God. (laughs) And they end up teaching these concepts because they haven't separated the old covenant sin management system from the new covenant sin removal program. The New Covenant Sin Removal Program is far better than the old, and it includes a new life, a new covenant, a new kingdom, and even, yes, new laws. (laughs) But understanding all these new things is sometimes hard for believers because their minds have not yet been renewed by the Holy Spirit to be able to see these truths. And in order to receive new truths, we very often have to be willing to let go of what we thought we already knew. (laughs) And we can see this truth in John chapter 3. Here we see Jesus having a discussion with Nicodemus regarding how to gain entrance into God's new kingdom. And Nicodemus was having a hard time receiving the truth because of what he already believed. Beginning in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, what some Christians don't know is that the Pharisees were having a revival. (laughs) They knew it was time for Messiah to come. So they're like, come on, come on, let's get back to law keeping so that the Messiah can show up and the kingdom can come. So he was all ready (laughs) for the Messiah and the kingdom to come. And of course, Nicodemus being a ruler of the Jews, he would know from his point of view that he was already in the kingdom. As a Jew, the Jews were of the kingdom of God. So, of course, he's just looking for the fuller expression of that kingdom. But it's about Israel being in control, not necessarily God in control. So he thinks he's all good. He's a good law keeper. (laughs) He's born of Israel. Come on, Jesus, be the Messiah. Bring forth the kingdom. Verse 2. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we. He didn't say I. Obviously, somebody had a meeting. (laughs) And say, you go and talk to this guy and find out if he's who we're really looking for. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And here the word see means to perceive. 
and understand. Nicodemus understood that God was with Jesus because of the supernatural signs and wonders. And the supernatural signs and wonders were evidence that Jesus was accessing God's kingdom, God's rule and dominion on behalf of those in need. And of course, Jesus was always preaching the good news of what? The kingdom. Jesus didn't have altar calls to have Jesus come live in your heart. He was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God coming to earth, and he was demonstrating it. Verse 4. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? <laughs> can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is very literal. <laughs> Law keepers usually are. <laughs> Nicodemus had this picture of a full-grown man trying to get back in to his mother's womb, which is a ridiculous picture. So we can see how literal and naturally minded Nicodemus was. And that was really his problem. He only saw it from his own point of view based on what he already knew and understood. But I like the fact that he does this because we are so like this. <laughs> we take things so literally that sometimes we miss the point, especially in scripture. <laughs> Years ago, I heard this cute story about a little boy who was in a church service and the pastor was preaching and it came time to have the altar call. And so he's inviting everyone to come up and asked Jesus into their heart. And you could tell the little boy wanted to come, but there was something, he just couldn't do it. He just couldn't make that decision. And then after the service and after the altar call, the little boy came and found him, tugging on his suit coat. And he's like, what, what what's, what's the matter? He says, won't he stick out? And the man, he's like, what? <laughs> he said, Jesus is big. <laughs> If he comes to live in my heart, won't he stick out? <laughs> and he said, yes. And that's actually the point. <laughs> we want Jesus to stick out. <laughs> but the mind of a child to take a picture and think, well, how do I get this big giant Jesus into me? This was Nicodemus. How does this work? <laughs> Verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Again, he's already offended because he thinks he's already in. <laughs> Many want to interpret this phrase, born of water, to mean water baptism. But Jesus did not baptize people in water. His disciples did, but he didn't. So if it refers to water baptism, and we could make the, the argument that it does, it would have to refer to John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance, or of a turning away from sin and turning back to God through law-keeping, very Jewish, <laughs> in preparation for what? The arrival of the kingdom and the Messiah. John's baptism never saved. It was a declaration of faith. But I think the next verse actually explains what Jesus was referring to when he said, born of water. Verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. 
And that which is born of spirit is spirit. One of the things that Jewish writers often did is they would say one thing, and then they would repeat it in another way to make emphasis. I think this is what this is. He's got, he says, you must be born of water. What does that mean? Well, it means you're a human being. <laughs> There's water involved <laughs> when you're born. <laughs> it's the natural picture. That's what Nicodemus thought he had. I am born of Israel. I'm born of the water. And Jesus says, mm, you got to be born of the Spirit. And so he's basically saying to be born of natural Israel is still being born of human flesh. <laughs> and that which is born of the flesh is still flesh, no matter how perfectly one adheres to the law. Law adherence doesn't get rid of flesh. So if you want to enter the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, you must be born of the Spirit. Again, very literal. How do I do that? How do I make myself be born again? <laughs> of the Spirit. Verse 7. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again, or from above. It can be both, and obviously uh, Nicodemus thought it meant born twice. But it also means born again, yes, but from a different place, from above. Again, this would sound crazy to Nicodemus because first he thought he was already in the kingdom of God because he was born of natural Israel. And second, because he was a faithful law keeper. Now Jesus is telling him that he's not even in God's kingdom and that there's only one way to get into God's kingdom and that there's no way he could accomplish it for himself. He could not make himself of his own effort born again or born of the Spirit. Verse 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh. And whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. I really wanted to use a different version for that verse. <laughs> There's a loss in there. <laughs> Jesus is saying that being born of the Spirit is a work of the Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is invisible. We can't see him with our natural physical eyes. And what was he using? Natural physical understanding. But because even though he is invisible, we can't see him with our physical eyes, that does not mean he is indiscernible. We can see and hear and even experience the effects of the Holy Spirit in us and on us, even though we can't physically see him. So Jesus is telling him that he has to think differently, very differently. He has to think in terms of that which is spiritual. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? How can I be born of the Spirit? How does one get born of the Spirit? <laughs> Nicodemus had never heard of such a thing. Most human beings have never heard of such a thing. Most human beings think naturally. If I'm good and there's a heaven, I'm going. As long as I'm not too bad, <laughs> in my own estimation. Born of the Spirit? What? He knew the Holy Spirit could be with somebody or on somebody, but the Old Testament doesn't refer to people being born again because it wasn't yet available before the cross. Verse 10. 
Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? He wasn't just a teacher. This is the senior pastor. <laughs> he's got several doctorates. You know, he's well educated. <laughs> As master teacher, Nicodemus knew nothing of what Jesus was talking about. He knew there was a coming king. He knew there was a coming kingdom. But his natural own understanding and expectations were getting in the way of him truly seeing what Jesus was talking about. Jesus continues, verse 11. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we, here's another we, <laughs> Jesus and the disciples, we speak that which we do know and testify to that which we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. Ye are the first we, the Pharisees. <laughs> he says, you and your group of, of teachers, you don't accept what we're telling you. And that's because the, the Pharisees weren't looking for a spiritual savior. They were looking for a natural one, one who would set up a natural kingdom. Verse 12. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things, or things that are spiritually discerned? Verse 13. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. This is an interesting verse. <laughs> Many Jews at that time believed that Moses, because of the great favor he had with God, had actually ascended into heaven in order to get the law. So Jesus is just sort of setting the record straight here <laughs> that he is above Moses. Only he is the one that has anything to do with the Father in heaven. And Moses never ascended into heaven. He went up onto a mountain, and heaven came down and met him, but he never went to heaven. <laughs> but he, Jesus himself, came down from heaven. And spiritually speaking, he was still there. Jesus said he was in two places at once, just like we are now. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus at the right hand of the Father. We are in two places spiritually while we're still physically here on planet Earth. There's no way Nicodemus could have understood that. You're crazy, Jesus. You think you're in two places at once? <laughs> he knew he didn't understand. <laughs> Nicodemus must have thought, you've got to be crazy. You actually think you came down from heaven? <laughs> And the truth is, we only understand these things because of what we know comes later. If you didn't know the rest of the story, you'd go, okay, you're a nut. <laughs> Which is what most of the ruling Jews thought. He's a nut. <laughs> He's not gathering armies. He's not doing anything Messiah-like. <laughs> they didn't understand. Verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is a change of direction for Nicodemus. <laughs> what? You're talking about all this spiritual stuff, and now you're quoting Old Testament to me? How do these things correlate? Here, Jesus basically tells Nicodemus, how he's going to facilitate bringing the new covenant and the kingdom of God into our spiritual reality. 
Nicodemus was expecting a natural king to sit on a natural throne, ruling over the world through natural means with God's help. But all of his thinking and understanding was all very naturally minded, so he was missing the point of the conversation Jesus was having with him. So Nicodemus would have to have the Holy Spirit open his eyes to be able to understand the prophetic picture found in the very familiar story in the Old Testament that Jesus had pointed him to. It's the story of when Moses lifted up the serpent on a pole in the wilderness in order to provide the Israelites with an opportunity to receive healing and life through faith in God's goodness and mercy. This was before the law. What happened back then in Numbers chapter 21 was that some of the Israelites were discontented wandering around the desert. (laughs) And they were grumbling and speaking ill of God. Never a good idea. (laughs) Speaking ill of God and Moses. So basically, God took his hands of protection off of them and he let them reap what they had sowed. Remember, that was their covenant. You do good, you get good. If you do bad, though, you get bad. So their very vocal sins brought forth the power of death through fiery, biting serpents. And then they very quickly, after they got bit, decided they were wrong in dishonoring God and his representative. So they went to Moses and pleaded with him to intercede on their behalf. But God gave him a picture that would only much later make sense to them, to believers anyway. So God told Moses to make a serpent of bronze and place it on a high pole so that all of Israel could see it. And if you were bitten, you needed to look upon the bronze serpent. Bronze is a mixture of tin and copper, and it indicates judgment. That's important. So those who were bitten by the serpents and wanted to still live (laughs) could look at their sin and its judgment being lifted up on a pole for all to see. And only those who would believe the word of God and turn from themselves and their own ability to save themselves, turn toward the place of God's judgment for their sin, would receive God's life, saving, healing, and restoration. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes, it does. Jesus was very clearly pointing Nicodemus to the plan of redemption. God was going to use the exact same method of deliverance for his people and for the whole world. But this time, God was going to use Jesus, the Son of Man, to judge all sin in the body of his Son, so that all who would turn from their own ability to save themselves. Now, this is a great picture. They're they're all bitten up by serpents. They're swelling. They're probably oozing pus. They're in a great deal of pain. And then God says, stop looking at that. (laughs) Don't look there. Look there. That's the same thing he calls us to do to stop looking at what is wrong, what went wrong, (laughs) what is hurting us, and to look to our salvation, and our Savior. All they had to do was look. And the Jews believed that when they looked upon the bronze serpent, that they said that was just the focal point, that you had to look beyond it to the Father. Because it was the Father who was bringing the healing and the redemption. I think they missed the point. Sin and its judgment was taken off of them 
and placed on a pole. They had to believe that their sin and their judgment had been removed from them, just like we do. We look away from what we've done, and we look to him who was lifted up on a pole, bearing our sin and our judgment. It's no wonder to me, at least, that Nicodemus was one of the men who took Jesus down from the cross. Can you imagine Nicodemus watching Jesus be crucified and having what Jesus said to him replaying in his mind over and over? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have not just life, but eternal life. So Jesus had basically explained to Nicodemus that the kingdom of God was a spiritual kingdom and it was coming in a spiritual way. And that if he wanted to be part of it, he had to enter the spiritual kingdom by becoming born into it. He had to be a natural citizen of the kingdom of God. And in order to be born into it, he had to be born of the spirit. And to be born of the spirit, he had to first turn away from his own righteousness and his own ability to save himself. And then he too would have to look unto the Son of Man who, by God's hand, would bear the judgment of all of Israel's sins as he was lifted up on the pole for all to see. And then just believe. Believe what Jesus was telling him. Believe what the Holy Spirit was revealing. Believe what was written in the Word of God and was foretold and foreshadowed. And then simply by believing, he would be born of the Spirit into the spiritual kingdom of God with its new laws under a new covenant of grace. Nicodemus, as a teacher of Israel, would have been very aware that there was going to be a new covenant, somehow, (laughs) that was very different from the old, and that God would bring forth his rule and reign on earth through the Messiah. He just thought of it in terms of it coming to pass where he could see it naturally. But like so many of the Jews, Nicodemus found it very hard to get beyond how he had always understood how God was going to fulfill these promises. Like most of Israel, his understanding was very limited and very natural-minded. So Jesus goes on in chapter 3 here to challenge Nicodemus' understanding of the kingdom of God by telling him just how big (laughs) this plan is. Very familiar scripture, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. No, he doesn't. He only loves Israel. (laughs) See, Jesus is getting it wrong on every account. (laughs) He's a master teacher. He should know. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. What does it mean to be condemned? To be judged guilty of sin and sentenced to death. But that the world through him might be saved, sozoed, love sozoed, saved, healed, delivered, protected, provided for, and made whole. Verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. And we could add the word ever. (laughs) but he that believeth not is condemned already he's already judged as guilty of sin and sentenced to death 
because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So God's idea of his kingdom reign was a whole lot bigger than just ruling Israel. And it was a whole lot bigger than what he could understand with just a natural man's understanding. He needed the Holy Spirit to open his eyes because he couldn't see clearly through the, just the shadows of the old covenant. The thing about shadows is you can't always tell exactly what it is. It could be a plastic piece of fruit. <laughs> and you think it's something you can eat. <laughs> That's the kind of pictures they had. They had a fuzzy idea of how this was always going to come to pass. And the truth is, much of the church has the same difficulty. <laughs> we often don't see clearly what the new covenant has purchased for us because we have embraced the concepts of the old covenant as if we still live in the same spiritual kingdom they did under the same spiritual laws. But the good news is, we don't. <laughs> we don't live in the same kingdom that the Jews lived in. They live in the kingdom of darkness. Those who are not saved are still living in a kingdom of darkness where they cannot see what truth really is. They lived in a kingdom of darkness, and in that kingdom of darkness, they were always under the constant power of sin and death. It was constantly separating them from God. You sin, you're separated. <laughs> it was continuous. <laughs> that was the problem. They lived in a kingdom where sin ruled supreme. But God, in his great mercy, and in accordance with his great long-range plan, provided the nation of Israel with an umbrella, an umbrella covenant. <laughs> it wasn't a covenant that took them out of the kingdom of darkness but it was a covenant that offered them an umbrella of protection, relationship, and light while they remained in the kingdom of darkness. By keeping the laws the best that they could and bringing the appropriate sacrifices when they failed, the Israelites could keep themselves under God's umbrella of goodness and favor. It worked. <laughs> but when they lived outside the terms of their covenant, they were basically setting aside their protective umbrella. And when they did, they very quickly would find that the law of sin and death was still there, waiting for them, just like the fiery serpents that were ready to strike and destroy. The Israelites only needed the old covenant umbrella until. This was always meant to be temporary. They only needed this umbrella until God could provide a way to take them out of the spiritual kingdom of darkness and place them in his spiritual kingdom of life and love. The law of sin and death only operates freely for those who are still in the kingdom of darkness. You can see it. <laughs> People are destroying themselves because they're living in darkness. And all of the citizens of the kingdom of darkness are prisoners to sin. There's nobody free in the kingdom of darkness. Sin is their master, their king. It owns them, and it controls them to varying degrees. And no matter how hard a prisoner of sin works at controlling his sin, his efforts to be good and to do good will never provide him with the power to escape that kingdom of darkness. Controlling his sinning may make his life more enjoyable, 
but it will never allow him to escape from the kingdom or that king. And that's what was wrong with the old covenant. It couldn't take people out of the kingdom of darkness, and it couldn't remove the king called sin, and it couldn't conquer the power called death. It didn't do any of that. (laughs) It was just an umbrella. (laughs) The old covenant with its laws and regulations was only a protective umbrella. It was always meant to be discarded as a means of making someone right with God. When the true king of Israel would come and call his people out of darkness and into his marvelous light, then they didn't need their umbrella anymore. Jesus is the true king of Israel, and his kingdom, God's spiritual kingdom, is the rule and reign of his government over all the powers of darkness, especially in and through the hearts and lives of those who look to him. When we believe on Jesus, we are supernaturally and spiritually translated into his kingdom, into his spiritual dominion and governing power by his grace through faith once and for all. The kingdom is eternal. You can't jump in and out. (laughs) He doesn't take you out ever for any reason. We can see this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. I have it for you in the Passion Translation, and I've added the word already in red just for emphasis and because it really needs to be there. (laughs) Colossians 1, 13. He, Jesus, has already rescued us completely. From what? From the tyrannical rule of darkness and has already translated us, already translated us into the kingdom realm of his beloved son. For in the son, all of our sins are canceled and we have the release of redemption through his very blood. What I want you to see in these verses is that our transfer into the spiritual kingdom of God has already happened. (laughs) It's not something that's going to happen when we die. He's going to bring the fullness thereof, but he initiated it, and he was demonstrating it, and he's the prototype. We're called to demonstrate the kingdom, the reality that Christ is in us, that he sticks out. When Jesus does return, yes, his kingdom will completely remove and destroy the kingdom of darkness. And then the only kingdom in operation will be his. But we have to wait for that. (laughs) But we don't have to wait for that to happen before we can enjoy the benefits of God's kingdom. We can apprehend the heavenly benefits here on earth as we learn to live out of our Father's kingdom of grace by faith in the finished works of Jesus. So our transfer into God's kingdom has already happened. And it happened without us making it happen. Just like Nicodemus, he's like, how do I I get in there? (laughs) How do I fit? (laughs) Holy Spirit picks you up, puts you in a different kingdom. (laughs) It's nothing we can do. It's what he has done to us and for us. So our transfer into God's kingdom has already happened. And it happened without us trying to make it happen. We believed on Jesus as the bearer of all our sin and the bearer of all our judgment for sin. We were then born of the Holy Spirit 
and we were automatically, it was just an automatic transfer. You ever have one of those at your bank? <laughs> just happens automatically. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. We said, save me. He says, sure, and transferred us into his kingdom. He transferred us out of the kingdom and dominion of darkness and into God's kingdom, the realm of his beloved son. And because we are now in God's kingdom, the rules of the old covenant no longer apply to us because we don't live in a kingdom where they're necessary. The covenant changed, the kingdom changed, and the laws changed. Under the old covenant, the worshiper had to have a confession of sin and another lamb <laughs> to sacrifice for every sin. Because the power of sin and death was right there waiting to attack them when they stepped out from underneath God's protective umbrella. You sin, you're out. <laughs> you sacrifice, you're in. You sin, you're out. You sacrifice, you're in. Constant management of their sin. <laughs> Not our covenant. Not our kingdom. And not our laws. We don't need the umbrella of the old covenant because in our kingdom, it never rains judgment from God when we sin. Never. And we can see this truth again in verse 14 of Colossians 1:14. For in the Son, all of our sins are canceled. Doesn't mean they don't happen. It just says they're canceled. And we have the release of redemption through his very blood. The Greek word for this English word canceled in this particular translation is the Greek word aphesis. And it can be translated freedom, pardon, deliverance, forgiveness, liberty, or remission, according to the Strong's. But I like the fact that the Passion Translation uses the word canceled. You ever cancel a check? <laughs> what happens when you cancel that check? It's no good anymore. It has no power or effect. It has no power or effect. All our sins are canceled in the Father's kingdom. Doesn't mean they don't happen. It just means they now have no power or effect. Because in our Father's kingdom, the law of sin and death no longer has any power over us. So sin can't separate us from our Father or our Jesus or our precious Holy Spirit, all of which I was taught it would do. <laughs> In fact, sin can't even disrupt our fellowship with God because the law of sin and death is null and void in the kingdom of God's dear Son. Sin and death has no power in God's kingdom. And we just happen to live there. I like how the Thayer's Greek lexicon uh, defines the cancellation or forgiveness of sin. It says forgiveness or pardons of sin means letting them go as if they had never been committed. It's remission, which means the negation of penalty. In God's kingdom, there's no penalty. There's no judgment for our sin. The power of sin has become null and void in God's kingdom. You know what that means? <laughs> sin doesn't work in God's kingdom. It's not a valid transaction. It's not that it doesn't happen. It's just that it's not valid. 
it's been canceled. <laughs> but in the kingdom of darkness, sin always invokes the law of sin and death, which is why God paid such an enormous price to be able to translate us into his kingdom of eternal life and everlasting love. That way, sin and death could never touch us, ever, spiritually, or interfere with our relationship with God. We are in the new kingdom, under a new covenant, with new laws. And we can see this truth in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. That's why, because we're in this new kingdom, that's why the Apostle Paul could say, there is now no condemnation! There is no one being judged guilty of sin and being sentenced to death. No condemnation to them that are where? In Christ Jesus, in a whole different kingdom. Why? Because there's a new law. <laughs> the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death cannot operate in God's kingdom, period. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has canceled all the power of the law of sin and death. Doesn't mean we don't fall short sometimes. Just means it's null and void. It has no power or effect on our relationship with God. He doesn't kick us out. He doesn't send us to our room. He doesn't do any of those things. He picks us up and says, you live in a different kingdom. You're a brand new creation. There is nothing you can't do. There is nothing you can't conquer. Sin has no power over you. This explains why we don't operate under the new covenant of grace the same way the Jews operated under the old covenant of law. They were in a different kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and there was no way out for them. The best God could offer them was a temporary umbrella of law-keeping and animal sacrifice to be able to let them walk in his blessings and in his presence. They could know him, not the way we do, but they could know him. But they didn't like having to carry the umbrella. <laughs> they kept setting it down. <laughs> but in the new covenant, he has provided us with redemption through his blood. Colossians 1.14 For in the Son, in Christ Jesus, all of our sins, are canceled. And we have the release of redemption through his very blood. According to the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, redemption means this. The repurchase of captured goods or prisoners. We were all prisoners of sin. The act of procuring the deliverance of persons or things from the possession and power of captors by a payment of an equivalent. That's part of my favorite part of this word. The word redemption paints a picture for us of someone being purchased out of a slave market by the payment of an equivalent to the value of that slave. God looked at his slaves that were all in slavery to sin in the kingdom of darkness, and he says, you're worth it. I will give my blood that you can be free. I'll pay the equivalent value. And then when a slave was purchased, all ownership rights were transferred to the new owner. And the slave became the legal property of his new owner. The previous owner had no legal access, no legal rights to that slave. The slave would then go live on the property in the kingdom of his new master. This is a perfect picture to help us understand that because of the blood of Jesus, 
the redemption price. We have been legally transferred to a new owner, a new master, translated and live in his property, <laughs> in his domain. And the former owner, sin, has absolutely no claim on us to be able to make us return to its dominion. None. It can't even take us screaming and kicking. He can't have us. <laughs> sin has no legal claim on us. It doesn't have the power to take us out of God's kingdom. It doesn't have the power to take away our eternal life in Christ. It doesn't have the power to kick us out of fellowship. It doesn't have any power in the kingdom of God, which is where we reside. <laughs> because of the blood of Jesus, the new covenant has provided us with eternal life, the eternal life of Christ, by enabling us to be born again directly into God's kingdom, where the spiritual laws are completely different from the laws of the old covenant. Jesus had much to say about how the kingdom operated and what believers could do in and through him and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Gospels are full of the kingdom of God is like because man had no way to understand what the kingdom of God was like. So Jesus kept telling them, <laughs> this is what the kingdom is like. Your sins are canceled. Again, the Jews of Jesus' day lived in a different kingdom. Nicodemus was living in a kingdom of darkness. But we don't, and we never will. It makes no sense for New Covenant believers to try to incorporate law-keeping <laughs> as a way of trying to maintain our position in Christ, in the kingdom. None of that matters. <laughs> it doesn't do anything. <laughs> we didn't put ourselves in Christ, and we can't take ourselves out, not even by sinning. Now, sinning is always a bad idea. Yes, you have to tell baby Christians that sin is not good for you. You won't like it in the end. <laughs> it bears some pretty ugly fruit. <laughs> because of where we are, we never have to choose to sin. It literally has no power over us. The only way it affects us is on our flesh head. It tries to convince us that it will give it, make us happy. It's always a lie. <laughs> but it has no power to make us choose badly. It has no power to make us wreck our life. It has no power to interfere with us being sons of God. Because it is not our king or master anymore. Also, it makes no sense for New Covenant believers to walk around with the Old Covenant mindset of the umbrella practices, making confession and bringing sacrifices and promising to do better in an effort to what? Avoid God's judgment for our sin. We don't need the umbrella because we live in a different kingdom. <laughs> and Jesus has already taken all of our judgment for all of our sin in his body on the cross. His one sacrifice for all sin, for all time, and for all people has enabled us to be translated directly into his kingdom as spiritual, born-again sons of God, where we are safe from all the powers of the kingdom of darkness and the powers of sin and death. Too many believers have been taught that the eternal life and the kingdom of God are something that's far away in the future. If it were true, if our eternal life and our position in the kingdom were way off in the future, then yes, you would need an umbrella. 
<laughs> because the power of sin and death is still active in this world. It's just not active in our kingdom. And so believers embrace these teachings that say Jesus plus law-keeping equals right-standing. And Jesus plus law-breaking equals wrong-standing with God. But that's the rules for the old kingdom, not our kingdom. The gospel is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit and be instantly translated into the spiritual kingdom of God where right standing with God is a gift, not a reward. You must turn away from trying to save yourself or improve yourself with law-keeping and good behavior because none of our own goodness has the power to change who and what we are. And none of our law-keeping has the power to translate us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. Instead, we must understand the clues that Jesus gave Nicodemus. John 3, 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus took all our judgment for all our sin on himself, so that by faith in his works, we could receive his life and enter into his kingdom here and now if we but only believe. Now, for some who hear this message, these truths are hard to understand and accept, just like they were for Nicodemus. Oh, this is being born again stuff. <laughs> Nicodemus might have even thought, um, are you giving people a license to sin, Jesus? <laughs> and of course, the answer would be no. And that's because when a government gives its citizens a license of some sort, it's never for illegal activities. The gospel isn't a license to sin. It is the good news that sin is no longer our master. It no longer has power to keep us out of our kingdom and out of the blessings and out of our Father's fellowship. It has no power. That's the good news of the gospel. It can no longer keep us prisoners in a kingdom of darkness. It can no longer torment us with threats of abandonment and disapproval from our Father. It has been completely obliterated for the believer. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has set us free from all the power of sin and death. And now we are free to live out of our eternal life in Christ, completely safe in his kingdom. And hopefully, our Jesus will stick out and be obvious to all. Amen? <laughs> Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the truth of the new covenant. Father God, we do pray for believers who have, are still blinded, who are carrying around umbrellas, thinking they're protecting themselves from the a judgment that Jesus has already borne. Father God, we do ask for revival in the church, that the gospel of grace would catch fire like never before. Father God, that the gospel of the kingdom, the truth of God's kingdom, that it's here and it's operating and we live in it and we can do the things that Jesus did and he, he calls us to let him stick out where other people can see him. Father God, we thank you that this is the true gospel. We ask, Father God, that you help us to spread it. <laughs> help us to be able to communicate it and to convince people of just how good 
our Father and our Jesus is. In Jesus' name, amen.